Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. 41 states and D.C. are currently suing Meta, including Connecticut. They allege the company knowingly built addictive features into Instagram and Facebook. But the conversation about what should be done to regulate and reform social media started long before this lawsuit. Today, we give an update on social media policy, and later, we hear from an activist and researchers working to make these spaces safer. But up first, and joining us now, is Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Thank you so much, General, for joining us today. Good morning, Catherine. And for our listeners, let us know if you have any questions, and you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Attorney General Tong, would love for you to sort of help us understand what's going on here, especially for our listeners who are not familiar with the lawsuit. Can you tell us the start of that and why 41 states, including Connecticut, are suing Meta? Yeah, uh, I just got back, um, got in late um, this morning from a, a meeting with my fellow attorneys general. We we meet a lot. And and more than a couple of years ago, we got together in a conference room for a number of days because we all know there's a youth mental health crisis across this country and across our states. And I have three kids, 17, 15, and 12. And anybody that lives in that space with teenagers um, knows that keeping your kids off devices and keeping them safe is is really hard. But we also know that um, it's much worse than that and that kids are addicted to devices. And, and what we know is that Meta, through its products, Instagram, Facebook, um, targets young people, um, gets them addicted to their platforms and monetizes that addiction. And that's why the vast majority of states have come together and and we sued Meta. We're part of a 34-state coalition in one lawsuit in federal court. And then there are a number of state lawsuits taking on Meta individually. And, and so as this process is ongoing, in your opinion, is Meta knowingly being harmful to its users? I know the lawsuit states Meta's recommendation and algorithms encourage compulsive use, which Meta does not disclose. So what are you, what are you finding from from you know speaking with your fellow attorney generals as, and as this is going on, are they knowingly being harmful to users? Not only do they know, but this is part of their business model and their strategy. And then they're lying to us about what they're doing to protect us. So for example, one of the most shocking things we learned is that the developer of the technology known as infinite scrolling. So what is that? Well, you know, uh, I have my phone in front of me and if you just keep scrolling uh, on Instagram, you don't have to change pages anymore, right? Not like on a, right. on a website, you can just keep scrolling. The developer of infinite scrolling called that behavioral cocaine. They, they know that it's highly addictive, that and what they call haptics, um, you know, devices to keep you engaged, pings, buzzes, 
notifications, the near constant stream of notifications. All of that is designed to keep you on platform. And then, of course, the algorithm, right? There's this right. big discussion about AI. Well, <laughs> algorithms and machine learning on social media are nothing if not artificial intelligence. And what they know is to keep you engaged, they've got to keep the, the machine has to keep sending you ever more controversial, shocking content that often takes you down a very dark rabbit hole um, and causes very severe mental health problems. Well, and and to equate infinite scrolling with behavioral cocaine is very, very powerful and strong. And you've also talked about or you've compared meta to big tobacco as well. So yeah. what do you think it's going to take to break the cycle of addiction when it comes to social media? You know, we need we need parents um, to step up. We need uh, our public and private institutions, universities, schools to step up, um, communities. But we need Congress, and and frankly, because Congress has been slow to react because there's this um, barrier to liability for tech companies and social media companies known as Section 230. Um, we're left with the states, and and like with big tobacco, the states have to act because we're tired of waiting for Congress. And so, uh, former Attorney General Blumenthal, now our senior United States Senator, he would tell you that more than twenty years ago, big tobacco did the same thing. They they targeted young people, uh, my generation of young people, and and tried to addict a generation of young people to smoking and nicotine, and they were largely successful. And it was state attorneys general who stepped in and sued them. And since then, we've cut smoking in half. Um, and, and we see the same thing going on with Juul and vape. We see the same thing in the opioid and addiction crisis. And now we're going after the social media companies, not just Meta, Instagram, Facebook, by the way, but we're investigating TikTok and Snapchat and YouTube also uh, have a lot to answer for. And we'll be diving deep into this um, today and talking about social media, how it is here to stay. So what are you hoping Meta will do to change its platforms to become safer, not just for youth and teens, but really for all users? You know, I'm hoping, first of all, that they're going to follow the law. And, you know, the law says you can't have kids uh, uh, under 13 on your platform. That's federal law. They fail utterly to do that. They're Tons of kids um, under 13 on the platform and on many other platforms. And I hope they'll finally acknowledge that they target young people and the harms. Um, my 17-year-old and my 15-year-old are, are two young women in America today, right? And it's this is a really tough place to be on Instagram for a young woman in America. And and what we've seen and what, what Instagram and, and Meta knows is that there are so many young women in particular who get on there and they start innocently enough looking at you know celebrity photos or or content uh, or videos or reels about about beauty products or fitness but it doesn't take long for the algorithm to take you down a dark hole into images of people that are unnaturally fit or who have eating disorders um and then we know that this has led to to bad self body self image, um, to uh, depression, um, self harm, and worse. 
And you mentioned earlier that, you know, you hope that Meta will follow the law. We've been talking about the potential addiction of infinite scrolling. And now you just mentioned, you know, a lot of image issues with, yes. with young people in general. Are there specific things that you feel can or needs to be eliminated from these platforms content wise or or regulatory yeah. wise? I, I, I should I should revise what I said. I, I don't hope we're going to make them do this. And and part of this litigation is to compel them after frankly years of trying to to convince them to change the way they they quote unquote moderate content and change the way the algorithm works, we're gonna have to force them to do it. And um it's too early in this lawsuit to know exactly um what those commitments are gonna be. Um, by Meta and other companies, but they're going to make commitments to keep our kids safe. And and if that means altering the way that infinite scrolling works, if that means stronger protections uh, to keep kids uh, off of their platform, you know, for example, Meta says, well, we would support federal legislation uh, to restrict access to, let's say, kids 16 and under, or, or even have a conversation about um, people up to, to the age of adulthood, 18 and under. Um, you, they can do that voluntarily now. They don't need to wait for Congress. They don't need to wait for a lawsuit. They need to act now. And if they don't, we're going to make them. And do you have any recommendations on what parents can do to promote healthy social media use? You know, we're talking about uh, using the platforms and there's a lot of, you know, negative usage from it, but it can also be a positive thing. So what can parents do to promote the healthy social media use? And do you have any guidance for those who are struggling with it? I can only tell you what what we do as parents, and um, it's really hard. It's a constant struggle. Number one is recognizing that this is an addiction. It's real. That we as parents and adults are addicted. Um, Catherine, I told you a quick story that I sure. that I challenged the reporters and camera people at the press conference announcing this lawsuit to stay off their phones until the end of the press conference, and. Everybody smiled at me, but I, I think many people, we all had trouble keeping our hands out of our pockets and not looking at our phones. And so if it's hard for adults, know that it's hard for your kids. Know that they're on, even if they're um, 13 and under. Um, know that they spend so much time on the platform. And and know uh, not all of the content is appropriate for kids. Um you know, one of the claims, and they have not been sued, to be clear, but one of the claims that TikTok makes, which I challenge, is that TikTok is the safest place on the internet for kids. And we know there's a lot of content out there on TikTok that's not safe for kids and young people. So know that there's an addiction. The addiction is real. The content can be really bad. And, and then make your choices. And I think for us, for me and Liz, it's not giving our kids a phone until they got to high school when we felt like they needed to stay in touch. And and nowadays, school demands a level of connectivity that that we didn't have to have when we were kids. Um, and then, of course, trying to limit their screen time throughout the day and make my 12-year-old go outside and, like, you know, throw rocks and play with sticks and, you know, right. take a walk. All the things we did as as kids. Right. And and a final question for you here, General, before we go on break is um, you just came back from meetings with your fellow attorney generals about this. You know, do you have any next steps that we can look forward to or, or you know, follow up with? Yeah, there's a lot going on with the lawsuit with Meta. 
Um, there are active discussions um, in our investigation of TikTok, and we're focused on the whole industry. So it's not just Meta. To be fair, TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, the whole um, the toll the whole ecosystem um, needs to be held accountable. And and we're we're focused. Um, we have dedicated staff in the office, and this is this is where um, all of our energies are focused right now. Thank you so much for that. And, um, you know, go outside and, and throw some rocks, but make sure right. you don't break anything when you do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You've been Thanks, listening, listening to uh, Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. I really appreciate your time being with us here today. And coming up next, when it comes to social media reform, it's often the parents that are screaming out for change. But some young people are getting involved and saying they want those changes now. We hear from 21-year-old activist Emma Lemke coming up next. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. In recent years, there's been a push to regulate and reform social media. Some people claim that these apps are harmful to young people and children. Joining us now is 21-year-old Emma Lemke. She's the founder of the Log Off Movement. It's a youth-led organization committed to helping kids, teens, and young people build healthy relationships with social media and online platforms. In February, she testified before a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on child internet safety. Emma, welcome to Where We Live, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation. Let us know if you have any questions, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Emma, can you talk about when did you first start using social media and when did your personal struggle with social media start? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I got my first social media app, Instagram, at the age of 12. And I ironically at 12 was one of the last in my friend group to get on. Um, so I remember seeing all my friends and their attention get pulled down from communicating and engaging with me in person to their screens. So in my mind, I thought that there was something so incredibly magnetic and wonderful that I was missing out um, with online. So when I begged my parents and eventually they caved, I got on Instagram and 
began spending, you know, five to six hours every day scrolling, feeling as though the world is at my fingertips, following everyone from, you know, Olive Garden to Kim Kardashian and the likes. And I, I do think that for the first month, it did feel like magic. It felt like I was constantly connected. I was able to post about myself, communicate, express myself in a new and genuine way. But then after about a month, I think that that supposed magic wore off and I realized that I was kind of living and engaging with a mirage, um, a company and a platform that, you know, was predicated on maximizing my attention at the cost of my well-being. So what that manifested and resulted in was hours scrolling mindlessly through that feature that was mentioned, the infinite scroll, quantifying my worth through likes and comments comments and followers and feeling that really negatively impact my sense of self, um, lead me towards depressive spirals. And then specifically as a young woman being fed through the recommended um, and recommendation algorithm content that they knew would keep me on, but did not really benefit me in my well-being as a young woman, specifically dieting ads that led me towards restriction. Um, and all of that being said, it didn't go away. It worsened over time, but I didn't feel as though I could detach because I was so heavily addicted to my platform and to my device. Um, and that lasted up until the ninth grade until finally I, I reached a breaking point and I had to ask myself how I was allowing these apps and these platforms to control me and what was really going on to lead to that loss of control, that loss of agency, not only for me, but for my entire generation. And as we we talked about this a little bit earlier with General Tong about how it is very difficult to really regulate yourself on these platforms. And you, you said it yourself just now, too. You know, it's, it's really easy to just be on there and just scroll for several hours. So w when you realized what was happening, did you feel like you could stop using social media? Because I know a lot of people say, well, just stop using it. But it's really not that simple. Oh, absolutely not. So I remember reaching that breaking point, but I had had so many other moments prior to that from the moment I got it at 12 to ninth grade, where I said, I want to get off. I, I don't want to do this. I would delete the app. And then an hour later, maybe even 15 minutes later, it'd be redownloaded. Um, so it really took for me reaching a breaking point where I felt so broken and dissatisfied with myself and my quality of life because of my engagements with social media and what really pulled me out of my addiction, or at least towards, you know, recovery, building better and safer habits, engaging with the material, understanding how I was being addicted, was that pursuit for knowledge, that pursuit of research, and for other teens like me. I wanted to know if I was alone and feeling like I was addicted and couldn't get off social media. Because that's the myth of hyperconnectivity. You go online and you're told that you can engage with anything, anyone the world is completely there for you to engage with. And I thought that if that was true, I would have found individuals online or elsewhere who would have shown that they also were struggling, that would have shown that they also didn't want to engage fully with all of the addictive features and feel as though that they were a guinea pig generation. But ultimately, when I got off of the platform, started to do my research, that's when I found all of the research, the voices that were emerging, discussing social media's impact on youth mental health. But what I really found was missing was the perspective of young people themselves. I knew that if young people were struggling, if young people were out there who were really upset and had these stories that could propel change, 
they had to be told, they had to be uplifted, and there had to be a community for young people to empower themselves and each other to go about that advocacy. And you mentioned just now that you had a difficult time finding young people voices, like your, your you know, re- reflections of your own voices. Do you think mm-hmm. there's an added layer of difficulty here when yours is the first generation to use the apps? You know, your generation is the digital natives of these platforms. And I'm wondering if that's something that often people forget that it, this has been around since you were born. Mm-hmm. So- yeah, I, I think it puts us in a very unique position. Because when I started log off, you know, I thought I'd be lucky if I got, you know, five people who would engage with me, made a website, went on Reddit, as many platforms to just say, hey, if you want to join, if you want to tell your story, if you want to have these conversations, please engage. And I have engaged with hundreds of teens from around the globe. People have flocked to get to really be a participant in this conversation, not a passive victim of big tech, but an active agent of change. And I think that's because of our position as that first generation, we feel an immense duty and responsibility to ensure that there are no generations that suffer the way that we did, that there are no generations that go as unprotected as we did. Because as it was mentioned earlier, we have been targets of big tech's consistent experiments to figure out how to addict their users. And that should not happen specifically for young people, specifically when the cost is our mental health and our well-being. I think my generation fully understands the extent of what that lack of action means. Therefore, a lot of us want to tell our stories. We want to engage and we really want to see the status quo shift because we felt it, we've experienced it, and we will not allow others to do the to do the same. And as you've discovered more like-minded voices, and as you continue with this advocacy, you know, what does your relationship with social media look like today? Has it changed drastically? Is it changing slowly? You know, what is that like for you right now? Oh, it's it has definitely changed um, dramatically, and I think it's partially because of a lot of the research of individuals that you'll hear from today and also, you know, researchers and computer scientists out there who, who've wanted to help. Um, so what that's meant for me is I've had to really work hard with my relationship to increase my tech intentionality, reflect, ask myself very in-depth, reflective questions on why I use social media, when I want to use it, how I want to use it, and be disciplined in that usage. But also, for instance, I take a very different approach to minimizing its harm on my mental health because I'm aware of the infinite scroll, because I'm aware that quantifying my worth through likes and comments and followers hurts me. I now put into place kind of systems and and processes that add levels of friction between me and those addictive technologies. So I have apps like the Stanford Habit Lab that buffer my screen before I try to go on Twitter. It is horrendous. I don't go on after that. I have apps that notify me when I'm walking um, and and tell me, you know, it's dangerous to walk while scrolling. Um, I have little reminders that, you know, flip the script and say, we can use social media, we can use technology for good to protect the user, to allow them to engage with all of the benefits and the positive capabilities of the online world. But as it stands right now, there are addictive algorithms, there are addictive practices that are attempting to, you know, maximize your attention at the cost of your well-being. So here are other 
computational systems. Here are other ways that you can engage, but in a safer, safer, user-centric manner. And earlier we talked to General Tong, and he mentioned, you know, from a parent's perspective, um, one of the things that parents can do is to, you know, to have these conversations with their kids and figure out ways to protect those users on these apps. And you mentioning several apps that you use yourself for safety. But are there other solutions for protecting not just youth, but everyone on these platforms? You know, is there anything else you can think users should be doing right now to take control over their online lives? You know, that's an interesting question. And one that I know a lot of individuals are wanting a good answer to. I'd say the first thing right now that can be done from any generation, um, because obviously my generation and and parents are having difficulties engaging in conversations related to building better screen time habits um, across generations, is having more productive conversations, um, specifically about why young people are using their screen times, how they feel their mental health is impacted, how they benefit, and working together, both as, you know, as an individual or with a parent, to maximize the beneficial capabilities of the online world while mitigating its harms. Um, and what that really means is listening with care and, you know, responding with love. Care meaning curiosity and open mind, respect, empathy, responding with love, you know, lots of questions, optimism, validation, engagement. I think it's really important to positively frame these conversations around communally growing with social media in a way that, you know, ensures our humanity rather than detracting from what makes us humans, connecting, you know, exploring the world. And I think these conversations are either non-existent or they're kind of, they're, they're weighted down by, I think, kind of difficulties with intergenerational dialogue or inter-peer relations. So I always say I go into conversations with that perspective of listening with care, responding with love, and working together with the people around me and myself to critically interrogate how I use social media, how I benefit, and how I can do better. And that reflection goes a very, very long way. And I was going to say, too, reflecting what you just said, we were also talking earlier that we we are talking a lot about the negativities of what social media can do for everyone. But there are benefits to social media for users like finding community or reading up on current events or even just catching up with each other and having these meaningful conversations like you mentioned just now. So how do we balance that with these concerns that you're talking about today? You know, I think that's a difficult, that's difficult. And the balance is a continuous process and continuous recalibration. When, when I go around me and my personal network and I talk with individuals that log off and design it for us, all the organizations I'm a part of who are trying to protect kids online, we really, really hone in on finding balance through oneself and building out one's community and network. Um, So for me and for the people around me, that is working individually, like I said, to reflect on one screen time, to try to put in better habits. But oftentimes it's very difficult because we all be, like we live in a society where putting down the phone is, is hard. I see people in class who can't get off it. We are addicted. But addiction and difficulties are always aided by having support and having individuals around you who are also struggling and wanting to do better. So for me and for the individuals that I engage with, balance is a product of finding a personal network and building better habits together, whether that's through a community, log off right now is building chapters on college 
campuses and high schools to aid in finding those like-minded individuals to build community, but really reaching out and finding individuals who can support you in your journey can aid in finding that balance, figuring out how you do benefit from social media, but putting into place productive and conducive behaviors and you know expectations for yourself that will aid in reprioritizing you as the user and your well-being in a platform and in a system that wants to just maximize your attention and deprioritizes your health. And Emma, you were listening to the conversation with General Tong talking about the the states being involved suing Meta. You know, how do you respond to this lawsuit? What's, what's going through your mind? I'm just incredibly optimistic and inspired. Um, you know, I'm a pre-law student right now, um, so I always believe in the power of the courts. I also believe in the power of the states specifically in this issue because only being in it for three years since I launched, we have seen such little action and and, and optimism um, from the federal government and many levels. We've seen many bills move, but kind of get stalled. So to see kind of action move to the states and to move to attorney generals like Attorney General Tong, who care, who care deeply about protecting kids online, both from, you know, his personal experience and his experience just investigating the issue at hand, it it provides great optimism and I think a, a great note for the future of demanding that big tech make the commitment that he said, that they make the commitment to protecting kids online, to limiting harmful social behaviors and affordances and restricting the underage usage of of minors on these platforms. So I'd say activists around me are very excited, happy, and we are we think that this is just the beginning of reigning in big tech and really investigating and attacking their addictive model and how they pull in younger generations. And we've got about a minute here left, but I still I want to ask you, having this conversation, we've we've dived deep in so many things and we're just at the tip of the iceberg, but we'd love to get some final thoughts from you. You know, what what do you hope our listeners take away from this conversation today? I want listeners to understand that this is an incredibly nuanced topic and subject matter as that pertains to getting le- legislation moved, um, trying to limit the addiction, the predation from big tech companies on young minors. But ultimately, this is an issue that resigns almost at every household that everyone can see around them. We all see addiction. We all see the need to pull out our phones and to engage, even when people are directly around us or in front of us. So what I'd say to users and listeners is, you can build better habits. You can build a better relationship with technology. We're working, advocates are working, attorney generals are working to you know, protect young people legally. But as an individual, you can take the steps necessary to engage with organizations, to build better habits, and to work with those around you to feel as though you're taking your the agency and power back. And I highly recommend that each person today thinks critically about how they engage with the online world, how they want to do better, but also where they think that they benefit, whether that's connective, expressive, exploratory benefits. How do you want the online world to serve you rather than the online world serving its private interest? You've been listening to Emma Lemke. She's the founder of the Log Off Movement, a youth-led organization committed to helping young people build healthy relationships with social media and online platforms. Thank you so very much, Emma, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. 
And coming up next, we hear from two researchers that are studying social media platforms and their impact on children's wellness and well-being. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about ways to make social media platforms safer for children. These platforms aren't going away anytime soon, and many researchers are still studying the effects they have on young minds. And joining us now is Dr. Michael Rich. She, he's a director of, digi- of the Digital Wellness Lab, and he's also the director, clin- director of the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Rich. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Kaylee Cruzan. She's a research assistant professor in the Department of Preventive Medicine and the Center for Behavioral Intervention Technologies in Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. And so I want to jump straight to this and and start with you, Kaylee. Are children especially vulnerable to problematic social media use? And can you tell us why that is? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the answer is is yes. So adolescents and 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 young uh, folks have a highly social orientation and an increased propensity for risk taking. They're also at a stage when it's really important to define um, their identity. Um, so they're going through a lot of identity formation, and so. These characteristics may interact with social media use in ways that amplify or increase susceptibility to um, some of the harmful effects of media. And uh, Dr. Rich, we've been talking a lot about how the lawsuit that the 41 states, including Connecticut, who are suing Meta, uh, who claim that the products, these social media platforms are addictive. What do we know about the addictiveness of social media, especially around children? Can you help us understand that better? Uh, Certainly. Um, uh, We've had a clinic, as you mentioned, for interactive media and internet disorders for over six years now, uh, where we have seen hundreds of young people who have gone down the rabbit hole of gaming, social media, pornography, and what we call information binging, which is the endless blogs and uh, YouTube videos, etc. And here's an interesting thing. First of all, we do not see this as an addiction. Now, why would I say that? Um, because it is an inaccurate term um, in the sense that um, addiction or social or substance use disorder, as we treat it, um, requires a physiologic change when using and when withdrawing. Um, and that does not exist in this case. There are behavioral changes, but not... Um, not biological ones. Secondly, um, particularly working with young people, um, the word is so stigmatizing. The word addict and addiction are so stigmatizing that it keeps them from care when it's easier to redirect them in ways that Emma Lemke talked about previously. Um, And so what happens is that these kids have really gotten in deep trouble by the time they come to us. And, and I think if we think about addiction as use of a pleasurable substance that's unnecessary for life and approach it in that way, and our goal in that case is to abstain from it, abstinence, um, 
in the 21st century, they cannot abstain from interactive media. They need it for education. They need it for work. work. They need it for um, social life and entertainment. Um, and so we see this as much more akin to a binge eating disorder, which is driven by underlying psychological issues um, and is actually a coping strategy. Of the hundreds of kids we've seen at CIMAID, um, there has not been one that did not have an underlying attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, anxiety disorder of one kind or another, depression, et cetera. And so when we identify that underlying problem and treat it, the behavioral modification gets a lot, a lot better. And ultimately, the word addiction and addict allows the sufferer to blame the substance and deny their own responsibility. And ultimately, it's their behavior that they have control of that is making the difference here. And so for that reason, we push back against the term addiction um, because I think it's counterproductive to actually helping both individuals and society. And so with that framework in mind, you know, Dr. Rich, in your work, you're trying to advance child-centered design strategies. And it seems like, as we talked about earlier with Emma and with General Tong, that these apps are here to stay. So what are ways that these apps can be designed so they're made safer for children so we don't continue that the path of not being able to get off of it? Yeah, that's all in the algorithm. Um, and um, I think that while it is a good thing that the attorneys general are calling attention to this. Um, I'm not sure that um, fighting that the industry, which has a lot of money and will put a lot of money behind fighting back, um, is the best solution. I think we are often seeking a binary solution to a complex and nuanced question, um, and and that what that means to me to me is, can we use the data we are generating both in our clinical uh, program, but also in our research programs that I and Kaylee Cruzan have um, to feed that back to the companies and say, if you want to maintain your business, you need to not go down the path of big tobacco, which is harmful when used as directed, um, and actually take care of your consumers, take care of your users um, and in ways that will allow them to continue to work with you. And so, Kaylee, on that note, we have watched apps, too, who try to do some sort of self-regulation, like Instagram for Kids, for example. Can you talk about the actions that the different platforms have attempted to implement to make their apps safer for children? Yeah, and I think I, I just want to sort of mention what Dr. Rick, uh, Rich said is really important, and I think that's, you know, kids do try to regulate their use, right? But the algorithm is set up in such a way that um, it's 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 set up to uh, make it very difficult for kids to get off. Right. And I know different social media sites have implemented things like moderation efforts or sensitivity screens or um, uh, these types of, of tools, which can be helpful but um, they haven't been entirely effective. And so in my work, I focus a lot on adolescents and young folks who are engaging with um, self-harm content on these sites. 
And we know that uh, lots of young people are exposed to self-harm content, even when they aren't searching for it. Um, and so when you have young people who go on these sites with these pre-existing vulnerabilities, these mental health conditions, um, and they're exposed to this content, um, we have, you know, it, it, it's incredibly dangerous because they they may not understand that, um, you know, this isn't, uh, there's a there's a normalization or a narrative reinforcement effect and if that makes sense no totally and and really quickly here can you talk about how is that content not flagged yeah um i think there are lots of reasons for this um one is that algorithms aren't perfect um uh and also there are humans behind these algorithms right that are flagging some of this stuff on on different sites um, the second thing is, and we touched on this earlier when Emma was speaking, is that there are there are benefits to connecting with folks in social media sites, right? So lots of folks go on to these sites to connect with people around self-harm, perhaps because they're seeking help. And so those folks may um, use different language in order to bypass some of these algorithms that would um, moderate that content out. So changing up letters or, or using different language so that they're still able to connect with that community. Um, and of course, that can have um, some benefits, um, being able to connect and hear other people's stories and seek out recovery-oriented um, connection. Um, but also, as we've seen um, time and again, um, it can have a negative effect as well, and particularly unwanted exposure to so, that content. So, Dr. Rich, with that in mind, we've got about 30 seconds left here, but be interested to hear, you know, with your conversations with with the younger people, you know, what are what are some are you surprised by some of the things that they've been telling you or are they pretty close to what we've been talking about today? Um, they're quite close. Um, I think that ultimately the problem with the algorithms that we were just talking about is that they are not tuned for the wellness of the user. They are tuned for ultimate clicks, ultimate eyes, ultimate time. And if and actually back in June, uh, we proposed to the industry an inspired internet pledge that tunes for emotional wellness, that uh, listens to those who have been hurt and responds to that and change it, change in response to it. And thirdly, that they should start to share data um, between them about how um, how these kids are affected, how interventions. Well, I, I apologize. Um, I actually have to cut in. A, we have to okay. end this program now. But thank you so much, uh, Dr. Michael Rich, who's the director of the Digital Wellness Lab. And you've been listening to Kaylee Cruzan, who is from Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.